Well, good morning. You probably never heard of the name Efren Galman, but you may never forget what happened to him. Uh, Galman, in the early part of May a year ago, was talking on his cell phone while waiting to exit the subway. And suddenly he heard somebody yell behind him, Give me your cell phone or I'll stab you. Before he could even respond, to turn around, he felt the knife plunge into his side. A man grabbed his cell phone, and then when the subway door opened, he exited the subway while 11 people stood and watched. Well, Galman, bleeding and in shock, collapsed in the seat that was beside him. Everyone else on the subway kind of made their way around him and exited the subway as well. Not one person stopped to give him assistance. No one wanted to get involved, in spite of Galman pleading for help as they passed by. Uh, thankfully, he was, had the presence of mind to grab the emergency cord and pull that to keep the subway from leaving the station. Now, uh, less dramatic, but equally as tragic, was Eleanor Bradley. While shopping on Fifth Avenue, she tripped, fell, and broke her leg. Her pleas for help went unheeded for not five minutes, not ten minutes, for 40 minutes, as literally hundreds of shoppers stepped around and over her, continuing with their day and their business. Uh, she was fortunate a cab driver happened to see the predicament and stopped and put her in the cab and took her to the hospital. Now, the question I have is why are we so reluctant to get involved, to get our hands dirty? Well, Dr. John Darley, uh, in a research piece he published in Psychology Today, uh, it's entitled The Bystander Effect. Uh, he says that we are reluctant as human beings to get involved in, in other things unless three criteria are met. Uh, the first is we've got to notice something's happening. In other words, involvement means that we've got to be alert. We're paying attention. Uh, the event has got to penetrate the fog of our personal world. Secondly, he said that we have to interpret the events as important. But uh, Darley said that that in itself is not enough to cause us to take the leap to get involved and to assist. He said, third, we must take personal responsibility to help. In other words, he says we've got to be willing to guess wrong, to be embarrassed, uh, to get hurt in the process. Now, I think the Apostle John was just that kind of person. He wasn't a bystander. He got involved in the lives of people. In fact, uh, you see the depth of his involvement in the third epistle he wrote, Third John, where you can see his engagement in the lives of three different men. Uh, there's Gaius, who he wants to encourage. Uh, there's Diotrephes, who he wants to confront. And there's Demetrius that he wants to commend. Now, the thing that blows my mind about John's third epistle is that when that letter was written, uh, John was an old man. In fact, commentators tell us that he was somewhere between his mid-70s to late-70s. And this is in the day, mind you, where people didn't live past 50. Uh, 
So, so at a time when you and I bought property, uh, retirement property at the villages in Florida, long past the time we have started taking Social Security, uh, when no one would blame us for hanging up the cleats, John doesn't retire. He's not retired. He's active and aggressively engaged in the lives of people. And in fact, to catch a glimpse of this very unique man's life, I want you to turn with me to that third epistle, third John, and let's read it together. You'll find it near the back of your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. He begins this way. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Now notice John begins by identifying himself as the elder. And we saw last week in Second John that that's a term of endearment. John is the last of the living apostles. And then he addresses the recipient. He calls him the beloved Gaius. And as we read this letter, it's going to be quite obvious that John has a fond affection for this man Gaius. In fact, four times he's going to call him beloved. And this is the man John is seeking to encourage. Notice he says, whom I love in truth. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about there being a relationship between love and truth. In fact, we said that love, love without truth, that's just mere sentimentality. And truth without love, well, that's cruelty. But love combined with truth, well, that can be quite beneficial. In fact, Several months ago, Patty and I had several friends over for dinner, and we had a fun time chatting, talking, telling stories, laughing together. And and after our guest had had left, uh, we were in the kitchen cleaning up, and Patty said, Hey, Doug, can I tell you how this evening made me feel? Now, you know that moment just before you find out you're in trouble? (laughs) Every man knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's such an innocent moment. And then Patty, it all came crashing down when Patty said, you probably didn't realize it, but uh, three times you interrupted me and finished telling my story. It kind of frustrated me, and I think it made everybody feel uncomfortable. Really? I had no idea, honey. I mean, I remember the stories, and I remember thinking I'm adding color commentary to it, but obviously I'd hurt her feelings. And so I said, well, sweetie, would you please forgive me? I don't want to do that ever again. And, of course, she did. And then I made a mental note next time we have guests over to the house uh, not to do that. In fact, the next time we did have guests over, I caught myself two times getting ready to do the same thing again. And I stopped myself. You see... Patty was loving, by telling me what she said, she was loving me in truth. That's what we're talking about here. She was loving me in truth, and I, and that was a benefit to her and to me. I, I think Gaius was the kind of guy that did the same thing. Now, what do we know about this man? Well, the first of all, John says that 
He was a man who was flourishing spiritually. Notice, he says, Beloved, uh, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, he's commending him for his walk with God. He's saying your walk with God is strong, it's robust, and he says it's prospering. But if you look closely, he seems to suggest that maybe Gaius' physical health is not doing as well. He says, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. In other words, I'm praying that your physical health would come up to par with your spiritual health. You see, there are times God will use physical ailments in our lives to get our attention spiritually. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who, who said that God will whisper in our pleasures. He will speak in our conscience. But He shouts in our pain. I think John is a man who's walked with God long enough to know that God will use trials, difficulties, I mean pain, to disrupt our lives from time to time. Now, why is that? Well, as we're walking with God, there comes times that He wants us to release our grip on things we think bring life, but they don't. I mean, God knows that if our pursuit of happiness is tied to those things, we're vulnerable. In fact, true happiness is found when we pursue God's purposes. And I think Gaius was the kind of man that pursued the purposes of God. I mean, so, so how does John know so much stuff about Gaius? Well, he tells us in verse 3, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in truth. I mean, apparently, John had sent several traveling itinerant teachers Gaius's way, and when they returned back to John, they told him how he was doing. Notice they said he was walking in truth. Now, that word truth is used seven times in this short little epistle. And you need to know every time you see it, it means reality. Reality. But it's the reality the way God describes it. In fact, several years ago, I went bass fishing with a friend of mine, a dear friend. He had all the equipment, 22-foot bass boat, 250 horsepower, mercury outboard engine. Uh, he, he had a uh, trolling motor, a depth finder, dual swivel seats back and front, uh, two live wells, a built-in ice chest. I mean, the necessities for fishing. <laughs> well, we launched the boat. And we headed full throttle to the other side of the lake to fish a hole that he knew about. You know how when you look at the surface of the water, you, you can't tell whether a lake is, you know, 75 feet deep or just two feet deep. You have to look at the depth finder and ought to know how deep it is. Well, we're coming around this bend into this cove, and my friend notices the depth finder suddenly goes from 100 feet all the way down to two feet deep. So he, he grabs the throttle as fast as he can, and he slams it into neutral, and I nearly go flying out of that swivel seat in the front. Now, what do you think would have happened if uh, we had hit that shoal, that shallow area, full throttle? 
You see, by looking at the depth finder, uh, he was looking at truth. I mean, the truth of the matter is that it didn't matter how deep I thought the lake was or how deep he thought it was. I mean, if we hit that shoal, we would have destroyed the boat. But that depth finder looked past everything and told us the truth. You see, when um, John says, or John says, Gaius, you're walking in truth, that's what he's talking about. The depth finder, when you looked at the, we looked at that depth finder, it was walking in truth, so to speak. And that's how John is using the word here. You see, the depth finder told us reality. The truth of the scripture gives us the reality too, the reality of the way God sees it. Uh, His words are like a depth finder. They see what we can't. They tell us the reality about life. They tell us the reality about His kingdom, the reality about what's coming in the future. Now, the second thing we learn about Gaius is found in verse 4 when John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, the phrase, my children, is in really in the emphatic position in the Greek text, meaning it should be interpreted, my own children. The implication is that John was probably instrumental in leading Gaius to Christ. And as a result, you understand why he has such a fatherly concern for this man's well-being. Notice he doesn't say that Gaius learned more truth, but that he walked in truth. I mean, that's the goal. In other words, there was equilibrium between his creed, what he believed, and his conduct, the way he behaved. You see, it's not what we know about God that matters most in our lives. It's it's how we allow what we know about God to impact our thinking, our behavior in life. The third thing we learn about Gaius is that he was faithful and friendly. Look at verse 5. Behold, you do faithfully what you do for the brethren and for strangers who have bore witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on this journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because you sent them forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Now, you need to know in the ancient world, hotels were treacherous, uh, flea-ridden places, and innkeepers were shysters. In fact, Plato said that an innkeeper was like a pirate who held his guest captive until he let him go. And so as a result, hospitality took on the sacred responsibility among Christ followers in the ancient world. And it explains why there's so many commands in the New Testament about being hospitable to one another. And in fact, Peter says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly, unwittingly entertained angels. Wow. And then Paul tells Timothy that a widow who 
uh, is worthy of double honor who ends up entertaining, or in other words, lodged strangers. That's what it means. So Gaius was somebody who opened his home. He opened his home to people he knew. He opened his home to even strangers. And it says in verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully what you do to the brethren and for strangers. And then in verse 6 he says, You send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. It's almost as if Gaius, he views people who cross his path as sent to him by God. You know, I, I never forget. Um, well, let, let me ask you this: Do you, you guys ever watched that improv comedy show on TV uh, called "Whose Line Is It Anyway" with Drew Carey? You, you've seen that. You know, usually there's a panel of four comedians, and uh, they create things on the spot. They make up characters and situations, uh, even create songs and sing them. And usually on the show, one of the comedian participants is set aside and he has to figure out how he's going to respond impromptu to what the other three are throwing his direction. And as you watch it, I mean, it's hilarious. And you come away just thoroughly impressed with the creativity, the ability to act on the spot. It's almost like that's exactly what God has done with us. He brings people into our lives and, well, we have to improvise. God says, I want you to respond to this person. We have to figure out how to respond kindly, lovingly, honestly, generously to this individual. We're improvising as we go. In fact, I'll never forget when God brought Dan Danielson across my path. I mean, this man, he can make a violin sing. He was a concert master violinist for the symphony. And at that time in my life, I had never been to a symphony. But it was obvious God brought him across my path and wanted me to engage with him. So to, to engage, to be hospitable to Dan, well, it meant several things. It meant, first of all, inviting him into our home. And we, we included him with our family on, on events and Got to know him uh, in a casual setting. It also meant that I went and studied the symphony a little bit. I figured out what a concert master was, and when I found out, I knew I was out of my league. And, and then it meant taking interest in some of the things that Dan has interest in. It meant going to some of his concerts, which Patty just loved, right up her alley. You know, last week I mentioned to you that relationships are built on on three things. There's trust, there's time, and uh, there's tenderness in order to have a lasting relationship. Well, in in this process of engaging with Dan, building on all three, uh, he began to open up with me. And he told me that being a concert master is not all it was cracked up to be. You're in competition with everybody in the symphony, basically. Nobody wants to be your friend. Everybody sees you as a competitor. In fact, as I got to know him better, I began to realize he had no friends, and I began to detect that, man, I think he's wrestling with some depression. Every time I was with Dan Danielson, it seems God would prompt me to think, I wonder what God's doing in this man's life, and how can he use me to help? 
Is, is there someone that you know like that, that you could be a gayist to? Is there someone you know this week that needs some encouragement that you could step in and provide that? Or another way of asking it is, what adjectives do people use to describe your life? Or do they say he's loving, kind, he listens well, or she's generous, or busy, engaged in your stuff? What would it be like this week? When you're with somebody, just to pray to God silently, God, what are you doing in this guy's life and how can you use me to help? I wonder what God would encourage you to do. What would you hear? What difference would that make? You know, I think Gaius was the kind of guy that asked that question of God all the time. But I want you to notice in the text there is a second individual mentioned here. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. Not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. Now, the book we're studying today, 3 John, do you know that book should really be entitled 4th John? Did you notice John seems to indicate he has written an earlier letter to the church? See that there? That letter was lost, probably intercepted by Diotrephes. He likes to control. He's a man that John needs to confront. I mean, apparently, he, Dotrophy was a leader of a church somewhere in Asia Minor. It was probably the same church that Gaius went to, and he attended. And Dotrophy has moved up to the leadership of that church to a position of leader in that church that allows him to control everything that comes into the church. He likes to control. And... John has to confront him. Uh, you know, there's a, a little bit of diatrophies in all of us. I, I like things to go my way. I tend to think my agenda is the right agenda, the only agenda. Uh, I, I like to deal with things when I want to deal with them. So what's the deal with diatrophies? Well, first John tells us that he loves to be first. Notice John says Diotrephes loves having preeminence among them. In other words, instead of a love for people, he, he really has a love for power. He's probably ambitious. He's prideful. And John says that when he comes, one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to call attention to his despicable behavior. But, but notice Diotrephes also likes to be a malicious gossip. Verse 10 notes, he says, If I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does pratting against us with malicious words. And it's obvious Diotrephes really had a disagreement with John. He didn't agree with John's perspective, his viewpoint. But instead of going to John and talking about it, Diotrephes was someone who liked to talk to other people about it and complain. 
Now, that word Friday is not a word we use very often today, if at all. It literally means to babble, and it carries with it the idea of assuming, uh, accusing somebody falsely. But notice how he describes his false accusations. They're malicious. Now, that's an interesting word. It means to throw off bubbles or to boil. And it would cause the first century uh, reader to picture in his mind a pot of boiling water, the bubbles rising to the surface and breaking on the surface, implying that this man's accusations, well, they're hollow, they're empty, they have no content. And so Diotrephes is someone who loves to be first, he loves to gossip, but most of all, John says third, he loves to dictate what others do. Second half of verse 10, notice he says, and not contend with just being a malicious gossip. Notice it says he himself does not receive the brethren. In other words, he refuses to open his home like Gaius has opened his. But it's worse than that. If you read further, it says that he forbids those who wish to. Putting them out of the church. So these people that John would send his way, these itinerant teachers, he wouldn't let them be in his house. He wouldn't let them be in the house of anyone who goes to the church, lest they be kicked out of the church. Now, now we don't have any idea why Diotrephes does this. I mean, perhaps these teachers, these itinerant teachers, were a threat to his leadership, a threat to his power. We don't know. But we, we do know he, he likes to control. When we moved to Colorado, the dog we had had for about 10 years died and it just broke my 11-year-old daughter's heart. And so we told her, you know, we'll get another dog. And she ended up picking out a little dog. It was a sheep zoo. Be careful how you say that. Just a little thing. And she named him Bear. It should have been named Diotrephes. That dog wanted his way. That's the way he lived. In fact, I'd walk into a room, he'd growl at me to let me know he's in charge of this room. I'd go to pick him up out of a chair that I wanted to sit in, he'd try to bite me. Every evening, we'd let him go out the front and let him do his business in the yard And he would take his sweet time. I mean, even when it was 15 below zero, he would walk out there. He'd turn back and look at me with a little grin on his face like, I'm making you freeze while I do my business. Well, one day we let him out, one night. And uh, he'd been out there maybe 10 minutes and I called him, tried to get him to come back in. He wouldn't come. I'd call him and call him. He wouldn't come. I'd call him and I'd hear his collar jingling as it was getting further and further and further away. The dog just did what he wanted to do. So I'm standing on the porch. I'm going, okay, see you later. I just shut the door and went inside. Well, late that night, we heard uh, this little scratching at the door. I got out of bed, went down, Opened the door, and there Bear was. He was covered in snow, barely able to move, looked at me, and just walked in and went right to his cage and went to sleep. Uh, The next day, I found him quite mellow. That dog 
liked having his way. That's funny when it has to do with a dog, but it's tragic when it has to do with a man. As I mentioned to you earlier, I, I think there's a little diatrophies in all of us. I know I've seen it myself when I want to have my way with things. I think my agenda, like I mentioned, is the best agenda. I mean, uh, my tasks, they, they come first. They, they even have a tendency to take precedence over people. Is there a little diatrophies in you as well? And I've learned over time that the only way I can overcome my desire to want to control is to yield my way, my schedule, my agenda uh, to the one who's greater than me, God. It's the only way you can overcome that tendency. And that's, by the way, why John says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is God, but he who does evil has not seen God. You see, Diotrephes was a man who closed his home while Gaius was a man that opened his. Diotrephes saw people as an inconvenience. Gaius saw them as an opportunity. Diotrephes loved to lord it over people, but Gaius tended to love people. Diotrephes viewed his home as a sanctuary from ministry. Gaius viewed his as a platform for ministry. Now, now as we come to the end of this letter, John ends with a breath of fresh air. He introduces us in verse 12 to a man named Demetrius who he wants to commend. Notice what he says. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness. And you know our testimony is true. It may well be that Demetrius was sent by John to hand deliver this letter to Gaius to make sure that he received it. And so John wants Gaius to understand that Demetrius is a guy that can be trusted. And so in this last verse, he mentions three hallmarks of uh, this man's character. Notice he says, I want you to know Demetrius is respected in the community. Look at verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. And then secondly, he honors the truth of Scripture. He also has a good testimony from the truth, the truth itself, from the truth itself, it says. Thirdly, he has a good reputation in John's eyes. Notice the last half of the verse. We also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. You see, Demetrius was everything um, Diotrephes was not. Uh, he, he knew the truth, and he put it into practice. And he was teachable. He was approachable. He, his character was believable. And John is trying to communicate to Gaius that you can trust this man, Demetrius. In fact, I bet Demetrius was the kind of guy who also prayed, God, what are you doing in this person's life? And how can you use me to help? You see, I, I think John, Gaius, and Demetrius were the kind of guys who would not, they would not be reluctant to get involved in the lives of people. 
In fact, in a seminary class uh, several years ago, uh, they were given the assignment to do an analysis of the story of the Good Samaritan as found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the assignment was due the next class period, and one of the students decided to do a little experiment. So the day the assignment was done, he got up extra early. He ended up putting on some old, tattered, torn clothes. He took uh, ketchup and mud and rubbed it in to simulate some kind of injury. He disheveled his hair. He glued on a scruffy beard so he wouldn't be recognized, and even drew on his face uh, to age him significantly. And he went and positioned himself near the trail or the path the students used to go to class. With their assignments neatly typed and tucked under their arms, not a single student stopped to assist this man. Not a one got involved. Intellectually, they had done their work. But personally, well, you be the judge. Father, thank you for this short little pithy letter that reveals so much about your servant John. For years in the scripture, there's just silence from him. As I suspect, he's working quietly behind the scenes, engaged in the lives of people. And then here at the end of his life, there's this story about him, the second John, the book of Revelation. And we see this is a man who truly walked in truth and pursued you with his entire heart. Uh, Father, would you bring to mind that statement this next week. What is God, what are you doing in this person's life, and how can you use me to help? And may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and his voice prompt us to get engaged in loving people and engaged in your agenda in their life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming. I hope you enjoy the rest of this beautiful day. And if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are right out the door. Uh, and if this is your first time at Horizon, let me invite you to drop by the hearth room, third door on the left. We would love to put a name with a face down there and answer any of the questions you have about the church. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you next week.